0: The scripture lesson tonight, the scripture reading, is Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. The word of God is found here as follows. In the Apostle John, receiving that word from Christ and through visions also is then addressing us here. But of course, it's the spirit addressing the church through what he writes. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, God's holy and inspired word this afternoon. May he bless it and also our reflection upon it to our hearts. <clears throat> Dear people of God, you probably know that we read every single day in our newspapers or hear over television or radio programs news about persons who have committed crimes or some violation of the law and who stand, come to stand before a judge, for trial. <clears throat> Persons charged with a crime are entitled in our country to a trial before a jury and a judge. And the prosecuting attorneys, of course, then present the evidence against them, and defense attorneys represent the accused and defend their case. Sometimes a trial is only for a day. Other times it can go on for months, especially If it's a high-profile case involving a well-known person, for example, often it turns into almost a, a show eagerly followed by the media and many people. But all on trial must, at some point, stand before the judge to be pronounced guilty or innocent. And that moment when that announcement is made is always a dramatic one. Family and friends of the uh, accusers or those hurt by a crime, as well as the family and friends of the accused, are usually present there to hear that final pronouncement or sentence of the judge. Because the judge's sentence, including the penalty that he meets out, or if it's vindication that he announces, that's the end of the matter unless appeals are subsequently made, which often happens, as you know, and it may be that a sentence is reversed. But even then, at some point, a final sentence must be given by a judge or a court, be it guilty or not guilty. This afternoon, we want to consider a judge's sentence, which is truly the end of the matter and in which there can be no further appeal. And in addition, it pertains to a trial that will involve all people, us too, sitting here. We're included as well. The world's greatest trial is still to come, in comparison to which all earthly trials are as nothing. It will occur when all persons who have ever lived will come to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, our Lord, and receive from him the sentence which is due them. It will happen on the day that the Bible calls the day of judgment, or often we simply call it judgment day. And it is surely coming. As we confess in the Apostles' Creed, in the words of the Creed, we believe that Christ shall come to judge the living and the dead. And what a day that will be. In fact, Christ's return from heaven in all of its aspects is already an awesome event. When the clouds are rolled back like a scroll, and Christ descends from heaven with his armies of angels accompanying him in power and great glory. What a day that will be the final day of history. Therefore, it's often called in the Bible by various names. Sometimes we call that last day the day of the Lord. The Bible also calls it the day of Christ. Sometimes it simply calls it that day. It's called the great and terrible day. It's called the last day. Sometimes people today call it doomsday, probably because they realize that it will be the last day of time when this entire universe will come to an end. Yes, to a violent end it will come, according to the scriptures. This present earth will be destroyed by a catechismic fire, as the Bible indicates, and then a new heaven and a new earth will replace it. A new creation will emerge. But before all of that happens, there will also be a final judgment of all people. And it's interesting, you know, that the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 19, which we read earlier, focuses only on that aspect of Christ's return. The only question that it asks, as you heard in Lord's Day 19, pertaining to the return of Christ, is simply, how does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? Yes, it's noteworthy how the catechism speaks here or that final judgment. It speaks of this, you notice, as a comfort for the Christian. The Heidelberg Catechism, you may know, has as its primary theme, our Christian comfort, expressed in that way in the first question and answer, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And that only comfort is that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and that comfort also extends to the final judgment of Christ then. Then too, he is our comfort and belong to him is our comfort. And I'll say a little more about that comfort aspect of the return of Christ, of his judgment later on in our message. But you know, it, it stands in sharp contrast to how many people view the judgment day. Most people in the world, I would imagine most unbelievers among them, secular, don't they probably don't even think much if ever, about a last judgment day. For them, that means nothing. They may think that's just puppycock, that's just what we say, but that really won't happen. But among Christians, too, at least those who profess to believe the Bible, there also are many who don't like to think much. They don't like to think much about that day because I think they have inside somewhat of a fear of that day. They, they may, you know, speak glowingly about the second coming of Christ and his return in the clouds of heaven. And, uh, but if you would ask them then, okay, but are you, are you looking forward to the judgment day? They, they may be hesitant. may wonder, oh, I don't know. I don't especially think much about that. I'm not sure if I, I like that portion or that aspect of Christ's return. That scares me. Maybe there are some here have that feeling, you're afraid of a judgment day to come. Well, before we are finished tonight or this afternoon, I, I hope you will see that the judgment day is actually a great day. It's a glorious day. It's a blessed day for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a day for us to dread, but a day for us to eagerly anticipate. So let's consider then the subject of the judgment day or the final judgment by asking two main questions. The first is, what will that day be like? And the second is, why is that day necessary? What is its purpose? But first then, what will the final judgment day be like? Well, the Apostle John saw a vision of it here in Revelation in chapter 20, which he recorded. And notice some things that John saw here or was given to see here. First, we see or hear that John saw a judge sitting on the throne. He writes in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. It was a very, very impressive scene here that John saw. Just like when we see earthly thrones of earthly kings or queens they, they're usually pretty impressive too. They're intended, you see, to fill people with a sense of, of awe and the majesty and the glory of the person who occupies that throne. But this great white throne that John saw and the person who was sitting on it was so majestic. It was so awesome, glorious, that it says that earth and sky fled away. That means all the attention was on that throne and the person who sat on it. And no wonder, because who was this person on the great white throne? Well, this is the throne of God himself. John does not specifically tell us whether it was God the Father or whether it was God the Son, whom he saw later in Revelation 22, verse 1, John speaks of seeing the throne of God and of the Lamb. And so we can actually say that both occupied that great white throne because the Father and the Son, of course, are one God, along with the Holy Spirit. And so in some instances, the Bible suggests that God the Father will be the judge, the king, who will sit on that throne. While in other places, it says that Christ, God's Son, will be the judge in Acts 10, verse 42 for instance, we read about Christ, it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And in Second Corinthians 5, verse 10, Paul writes, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I think the best way to understand this is that God the Father will exercise his judgment through his Son, who sits next to him on the throne at his right hand. But now when you think of that, that Christ is the one who will be the judge on that last great day, you can already begin to see that this is actually a great assurance for us as Christians. And I believe the Catechism brings it out very beautifully in Lord's Day 19 by this statement. In all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge. Now listen, to the, the very one has judged the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God and so has removed the curse from me. What we read here, in effect, is that Christ too had to stand before a judge, God the Father, because he was carrying our sins. He stood trial as well when he was on earth. But he's the one who not only stood trial there before God, but has removed the curse, the curse of God from us. He's the one who is sitting here on that great white throne to be our judge. Not some, you know, a judge. I remember one time I had to serve on a jury and the judge, you know, they come in and they have this black robe on it. You're kind of struck with some awe. You know, man, you know, and, uh, but that's an, he, who knows him? Personally, I, you know, he's an austere person to us, a total stranger. But our judge will be our own judge, Blessed Savior, who has endured the judgment of God already for our sake and bore the curse for us, though he was innocent himself. He's the judge on that great judgment day. Always keep that in mind. Our glorious, exalted judge is the same person who gave his life for us as his sheep and knows each one of us by name. Then also, notice who are the judged, as John sees it in his vision. Who are the ones who must come to stand here before that majestic king sitting on the great white throne? And I've already indicated to you the answer, but listen again to what John records in verse 12 of our text. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. You see, before this final judgment takes place, some other things must take place, as our Lord Jesus returns from heaven. One is that all persons who have ever lived and died on this earth will be raised from the dead. There will be this glorious and great resurrection of the bodies of all believers, believers and unbelievers also, actually, young and old, those who have died in infancy and those who have died at a ripe old age. All of them will rise from the dead, from their graves. And then they as well as those who are alive on earth, when Christ returns on the clouds, they will at some point then all come to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. John continues to write in verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Hades is a biblical term for the realm of death. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So this indicates that no matter how famous or infamous, however mighty or weak a person may have been on earth, every one of them will have to appear before the judge on the throne to be judged according to what they have done. Every dictator, every world power, every worldly entertainer, every well-known, but also every unknown person, even the devil himself and all his demons, they will all have to stand before Christ. When you think of that, what a tremendous multitude that will be to appear before the throne of Christ. I mean, this is inconceivable, really. How many people do you think have lived on this earth from the beginning of history or time. And I, uh, I googled that, just I don't know, and, uh, and one of the websites, the internet estimated that from the beginning of human history, over a 100 billion people, over a 100 billion have lived on earth. And today, as you may know, we're approaching eight billion people on earth. I ask you, can you imagine one hundred billion people standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Granted, we, we don't know. We don't know exactly how that can be, how that will happen. You and I automatically may wonder. Well, now, how in the world can the Judge, Christ, how can He judge every single person of those one hundred billion, according to what they have done? How, how long would that take? Those are human questions that we ask. The Bible gives no detailed answer to that. I am sure it's going to be a supernatural event, a supernatural event. But what we do know, biblically, is that everyone, everyone will have to stand before the judge. No one will be exempt from or escape that final judgment. Then the next question is, how will all those persons be judged by Christ? That is to say, what will be the standard for his judgment? And well, John writes this in verses 12 and 13, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, what are those books? We don't have to think that uh, Christ will have literal books In his hands, to that record every single deed that every person has ever committed on earth. You have to remember, this is a vision. This is a vision that John saw here. So he saw Christ holding these books, but what it really represents is simply that Christ has an infinite record and knowledge of everything, and of everyone and what they have done. He knows all people and all their lives. All they have done, because he's infinite in his knowledge. And so this judge will be able to judge all people with a full knowledge of their deeds. And it says here, he will judge them according to what they have done. You may ask, well, doesn't the Bible say that we're not saved by what we have done? We're not saved by our good deeds. We're saved by grace alone then why would Christ judge us, too? Because we'll be there, too, according to what we have done. And certainly it's true that we are saved by the grace of God alone and that salvation can never be earned by our works. When the Bible speaks here of all persons being judged according to what they have done, you have to keep two things in mind here. And one is that this, of course, would also include, first of all, in fact, whether they have believed in Jesus Christ or not, whether they have given their lives to Christ, whether they have truly trusted in him for their salvation, they will first of all, we will all first of all be judged as to whether we have indeed put all of our hope and faith in Christ. But then secondly, we also have to remember that God does judge us or Christ will judge according to how we have lived. And why is that? because he will determine the measure or degree of our reward or punishment according to what we have done. There are different degrees of reward and punishment. You realize that the Bible talks about that God will meet out those who come to stand before him. Those, after believing him, who have served him faithfully on this earth, will be rewarded accordingly. And if you think of the parable of the talents, you remember that the servants in the parable who had been commissioned by the king to to use their talents for him, they received different rewards from the king when he came back. Some received a greater reward than others, while others received less, and there was even one, of course, who received nothing. He was cast away. Remember, though, that it's only by God's grace alone that he does reward us according to what we have done, not due to our own worthiness. And then also those who have not believed in Christ, they will all be eternally lost. But even among them, the Bible indicates that some will be punished more severely than others. Jesus even said once, which is kind of an amazing statement when you reflect on it, Jesus said once that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the wicked people of Sodom and Gomorrah than for the unbelieving Jews who rejected him. Those in our world, people of God, who have never heard the gospel will not be punished as severely as those who have heard the gospel but refused to accept it. And so in the final judgment, justice will be meted out to every person. Yes, Christ is just. He will overlook anything that we have done or said or even thought, whether it is good or evil. And you know, when I think of that, that should prompt us, shouldn't it? To live our lives as best we can. To the glory of our Savior. That we should all be rich in our good deeds. And our life of service to Christ will be rewarded according to what we have done. But then there's another side, too, here. Because then John also adds that another book was opened by the judge on the white throne. And that was what he calls the book of life. And what is the book of life? It's the book that contains all who are saved by Christ and receive from him the blessing of eternal life. Hence, it's called the book of life. And so when Christ opens our lives on that last day, when we stand before him, he doesn't only look, he doesn't only look at whether we have done good and bad, but then he also looks into the book of life. And what does that book say? It says simply this. In spite of our sins, in spite of our total unworthiness, we are still saved by him because our sins have been washed away by his, Christ's precious blood. We've been made just in his sight, made righteous before him. Yes, our name is in the, if our name is in the book of life, it means simply that we have received the gift of life, everlasting life from our Lord himself. And it makes me always think when I read about that book of life and if our name is there, it makes me think of that gospel hymn that I think most of you probably or many of you have certainly heard as well, which is really a hymn that asks you some questions. And it's this, is my name written there? Is my name written on the book wide and on the page white and fair in the book of his kingdom? Is my name written there? And is your name written there? in the book of life. And so that will be opened by the judge so that he indeed will say, these are my people. These are the ones I have saved by my precious blood. They belong to me. They will receive eternal life. So what have we seen so far this afternoon? We've seen who the judge will be our Savior Jesus Christ himself, our Lord himself. Who will the judged be? All who have ever lived on earth and including the fallen angels as well. And what will the standard of judgment be? Everything we have done, whether good or evil, and whether our names are in the book of life. And I want to turn secondly, and more briefly here, to asking, what, what will happen then? Yes, what, why does there have to be this, this, this final judgment, really? What, what is its meaning? What is its purpose, really? And, and I raise that because I think many Christians have asked that question, and they've, they've wondered about that. They, they, I've received questions such as this. If we are already judged by God when we die, so that when we die, we, we either go to heaven or to hell, God already determines at that point whether we, what our eternal destiny will be. Then why, why do we have to have another judgment? Why do we have to have a final judgment? Don't all people go to heaven or hell upon their death? Yes, they do. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, verse 27, that it's appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. And so there is a judgment immediately after death to determine our everlasting lot, That's exactly why we call the judgment day the last judgment. The final judgment, the first judgment takes place when we die and enter into our eternal destiny, when we come before God upon death. The last judgment will happen upon the return of Christ. But why is that last judgment necessary then? And let me cite a number of reasons. One is because not every person will have died when Christ returns. Many people will still be alive on this earth when Jesus Christ comes back, and they, of course, have, have never been judged by God and what their eternal destiny will be. But even for those who have already died before Christ returns, who already have been sent to heaven or hell, the last judgment is still necessary for them as well. And why is that? Because for one thing, when we are judged the first time after we die, only our souls are judged. And enter either into what we would call an intermediate heaven and an intermediate or an intermediate hell. But after Christ comes again, our bodies will first be raised and then we will stand before Christ, body and soul. To be judged for our eternal destiny. To enter into the new heaven and earth that will come about forever. Or into the eternal hell which will endure forever. That doesn't mean that people will get a second chance to be saved. Some people like to think that God will give persons who have not believed in Jesus here on this earth and in this life, Jesus will have mercy. And when he comes again, he will still give them another opportunity to, to believe in him so they may be saved. Well, beloved, the Bible nowhere indicates that. Nowhere teaches anything of that sort. In fact, what it indicates is that once we die, the day of grace is past. Once we die our ultimate destiny has been determined either to be with God in glory or forever apart from him in the outer darkness. And that's why it's so important, so critical, that we believe in Jesus Christ before we die. Because whatever the judge will tell us on Judgment Day is not going to change our final destiny from what he already has done and declared us to receive upon our death to be with Christ or to be apart from Christ. That's not going to change. That has been determined already when we stand in that first judgment. But again, on that final judgment, body and soul will come to stand before him. And then, then I haven't even yet given to you the real primary reason why there has to be a judgment day. Why is this awesome day necessary that everyone must appear before the judgment seat of Christ? And though finally this, this afternoon, they underscore this truth. The last judgment day is not for us. And for all men. Not really. Obviously, it will involve all of us. But it's not first of all for us. All the attention in John's vision, as you notice, is on the king, the king, the judge on the throne. All the attention is on him. This is a day for Christ's display of his ultimate sovereignty and glory. That's his final purpose here. Judgment Day is the glory day. Glory day for Christ. We see him display here his sovereignty and his justice. His perfect justice, his sovereign justice. Because on that day, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow before him, every tongue shall confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can you imagine all the knees of people who've ever lived bowing before the Lord, Sitting on the white throne. Can you imagine the sight of all the world's rulers and dignitaries, past and present? Every single emperor, king, queen, president, premier, all of that power in any sphere of life, all of them on their knees, bowing before the king of kings. Then they will know who Christ is, then they will know his sovereignty. And his justice. For he'll pronounce on them all judgment according to what they have done as we've seen. Even Satan, the arch enemy of God, the prince of darkness, will then bow before the Lord. And they will all have to say, He is Lord. And not only will they then know his absolute sovereignty, but they will also hear his perfect justice. Judgment day is really necessary to set the record straight, to make clear before the entire world that God is just, and that every person therefore will receive from him their just due. Millions of people, millions of people, as you know, have suffered in history from wicked rulers, from depraved oppressors who've defied God, who've massacred millions Hitler ordered this massacre of 6 million Jews. Stalin, 35 million, when he ruled over the Soviet Union. And some may have gotten away with it on earth, but not before the throne of Christ. I think of those who've lived lavish lives on earth those who indulge in all kinds of sins, those who have led millions of people astray, those who blaspheme God's name and received even the praise of men but before the throne of Christ. Their wickedness will be made known and they will be judged for what they have done. Everyone, even those eternally condemned, will then have to say, Yes, Lord. You are righteous. You are just. And you and I, too, will then bow the knee before Jesus Christ, the judge on the throne, and we, too, will proclaim his justice and his righteousness. But there's one key difference between believers and unbelievers on that last day. Believers will praise Christ, praise Christ. And not only for his perfect justice, but they will praise him, sing his praise for his great mercy, for his magnificent grace. Yes, on Judgment Day, Christ will show his ultimate love and mercy to all who have believed in him, and the whole world will see it. But those who belong to Christ, they will sing it. Despite everything we have done, despite all our unworthiness, the judge will say to his own people, come, you blessed of my father, enter the kingdom I have prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for I've saved you by my blood. I've died for you so that you can be mine forever and you can live with me in my new creation. That's the time that we will sing in a way we've never sung before, Of his amazing grace. Do you see why we need judgment day? Do you see why this is a great day? A day of rich comfort and joy, as the catechism says, for God's redeemed people. Not a day, not a day to be feared, but a day to be eagerly anticipated. And will it be that day for you? Is all your hope founded and the judge on the throne who is also your Savior so that you can sing of his justice and also of his grace. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, we are grateful that for a little while we can once again be reminded that through your marvelous word of that final judgment day that is to come, And Lord, we pray that we too may have learned again here this afternoon the greatness, the glory, the blessedness of that day. It's comfort for us as your children, even as we stand in awe, in awe of you, Lord Jesus Christ, already on the throne and then seated on that day as the judge on the great white throne. Oh, how we rejoice again, blessed Lord, our King, that we can know you that you know us. You're our Savior. We are your people. Oh, we pray if anyone here does not have that conviction, that faith in his or her heart, that you will stir that faith within them to cast all their hope and faith and trust in Christ, that in him they too can be assured that on that judgment day they will receive his promise, his sentence, come into the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.